uh, chapter 38 of Genesis, uh, we find um, Joseph sold into slavery, Judah going down into Canaan, down, down, down into Canaan, trying to figure it out on his own. We're going to pick up the reading in verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, to his sheep shears. He and his friend Hira the Adullamite, and where Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to a name, which is the road to Timnah. For she saw that Selah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her on the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, to take back the pledge from the woman, woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute that was at name on the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been there. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been there. And Judah replied, let, us keep the things as her own. let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Selah, and he did not know her again. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Pray. Father, we approach your word, and we ask that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers of it, that we would um, understand that Andrew would be able to bring truth, and that we would be able to not just hear the truth, but apply that truth to our everyday lives. We thank you, dear God, for how you have been faithful throughout the generations, and ask that you would be faithful today as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Great to be with you. Open up this passage of scripture. 
I uh, mentioned on Friday, it's, uh, it's quite a passage. Um, there was a, an old homiletic book who, uh, or, you know, preaching book, they said, this is not fit for public exposition. Um, I don't know why, it must have been Victorian era, I don't know, uh, but, uh, you know, we know that all of God's Word is, is useful for correction. Same time, it is hard to find a children's bulletin to go with this one. Uh, there's, uh, those aren't big themes. There's a lot of big themes here, you know, themes, uh, some of them are, are somewhat adult themes. Uh, certainly don't apologize for that, but uh, make you aware of that as we go. Uh, there are deep heart themes here, uh, themes of things like guilt and shame, uh, failure, uh, disappointment, struggle, escape, questioning. These are, are, are themes that, that come into the lives of God's people. And, and not just any of God's people, uh, this is Judah. You know, we just got done singing about the, the Lion of Judah, speaking of Christ and Judah, who uh, the, the morning star comes from. This is Judah. As Israel is getting ready to go into the promised land after they've been in captivity for 400 years, and they're asking Moses, tell us the stories of, of who we are. You know, help us understand who we are. Help us understand who, who God is. This is one of the stories that God inspires Moses to, to tell so that the people of God can understand who they are. And that's what we're doing this morning. As we dive into this, we're, we're trying to understand not just this story, and it's not a fictional story. I mean, this is real stuff, right? Uh, we're, we're trying to not just understand the narrative here, but through it to understand our hearts a little bit better. I mentioned things like guilt, shame, failure, disappointment, struggle, running away, questioning, all of those. And, and you know, just to make the connection that it's not simply something that would happen back in Judah's days, let me share with you a little bit the story of Bryce Griffith. Uh, she's a young woman who found herself in a difficult situation in life, and uh, she felt like the best option for her at that time was to get an abortion to end a pregnancy that she couldn't see how it was going to go. Uh, this is what she says about the aftermath of that, the immediate aftermath. After napping, I was raring to get back out to the bar scene. There was not enough whiskey in D.C. to satisfy me that night or any night for that matter, for the months following. For months after that, I knew nothing except I wanted to die. Death was the only certain escape from the horrific pit that had formed in my soul. I begged for therapy, I screamed for help, but only on the inside. How could I admit what I had done to myself or others? So I buried it. No one else needed to know. No one else needed to judge me as harshly as I had come to judge myself. Now, my purpose is not to judge her this morning. Uh, and I know that these are sensitive stories, and, and there may be people here this morning who have stories very similar to the one that Bryce is sharing. 
But the purpose is to just recognize that when we talk about Judah, you know, some 2,000 years ago or so, we, we are also talking about our stories, and, and we're talking about how we enter into things even today. So I think it'll be good for us to, to dive in and to seek to understand this both with our head and with our hearts a little bit better. And I want to start with flight. Um, you know, David read to you verses 12 to, to 26, uh, but we're going to be looking at the whole chapter. It's all printed for you there. And you see, uh, it starts with this, at that time, or it happened at that time, that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite named Hira. Uh, at that time, what, what time was this? Well, this was the time when Judah uh, had sold his troublemaking younger brother, at least in his mind, his troublemaking younger brother, into slavery uh, in chapter 37. It was at this time when Judah had been reminded when they brought back the cloak and Jacob wouldn't be comforted. It was at this time that Judah was reminded that he still didn't matter to his father, uh, that his father still loved Joseph more than he loved him. It was at this time when he was wondering about his relationships with his brothers and he was wondering about his purpose and his calling and all of this. It was at this time that he said, I can't face it. I got to get out of Hebron, and he went down, literally, Hebron, it's in the mountains, the heights, to the lowlands of Canaan, and there is where he sought solace, he sought to find comfort. And I think one of the first things that we recognize is whether it's, uh, if you want a sub-point here, uh, familial difficulty or a familial rift you know, whether it's that or something else, our tendency is to want to escape. You know, our tendency is to want to uh, go around or over or under the wall, anything except going through the wall. And, and one of the things that this story indicates is both the tendency of our hearts to do that, but also the, the lunacy of our hearts to think that that is actually going to work, uh, that we can you know, find our way on our journey by skirting the walls that come up in our life. One writer talks about the walls in our life uh, this way. He says, for most of us, the wall appears through the crisis that turns our world upside down. It comes perhaps through a divorce, a job loss, the death of a close friend, uh, or family member, a cancer diagnosis, a disillusioning church experience, a betrayal, a shattered dream, a wayward child, a car accident, an inability to get pregnant, a deep desire to marry that remains unfulfilled, a spiritual dryness or loss of joy in our relationship with God. And when we come to these walls, he goes on to say, we question ourselves, we question God, we question the church. We discover for the first time, and I think this is so interesting, that our faith does not appear to work. Have you ever been there? Why isn't my faith working? We have more questions than answers as the very foundation of our faith feels like it is on the line. We don't know where God is. We don't know what He's doing. We don't know where He's going. We don't know how He is getting us there or when this will be over. It's understandable why we try to avoid the walls in our life, isn't it? I mean, it's not 
It's not pleasant. It, it, it's difficult stuff. I mean, that list, these are, these are not just the uh, inconvenient trials of our life. This is not traffic on 131, you know, trying to go north at 5 o'clock on Friday. This is not running out of toilet paper at the most inconvenient time. This, these are real things that happen in our life, and we wonder at the very core. The problem is, you know, for Judah, is that he's leaving the very people and the very community that God has given him to. You know, God, God placed him in, I mean, if we can say it, the covenant family. I mean, like, this is Jacob, right, and the patriarchs, and these are the 12 tribes. I mean, he is in the place that God has chosen to bind himself to more than anything. And, and what does Jacob, or what does Judah do when he faces the trouble? He says, I'm out of here. I, I'm going to go find solace somewhere else. I'm going to leave my community. I am going to no longer take uh, advice from mentors, maybe mentors that have disappointed me. And let's acknowledge that. I mean, like Jacob, we, we disappoint, uh, but, but Judah goes, and, and he goes to the Canaanites, the people that they were to be a light to. The problem is, is that when we do that, we're just delaying the problem. Uh, we're delaying, you know, it's like if you, if you use a, a painkiller, you're not really getting at the root of the pain, right? You're just easing the symptom. But when that wears off, the pain is still there. I mean, you still haven't dealt with the root of the pain. And, and, and Judah still hasn't dealt with the root of the pain. And so even though he has left Hebron and he's left his family and he's in Canaan, he still hasn't dealt with the core of who he is. And that's where we see not only his familial rift, but we also see a failure in his fatherly responsibilities. Uh, you know, that section 6 to 12 or 6 to 11 is a very interesting section. I mean, you know, Judah sees uh, this woman, he marries the, the daughter of Shua, then he has these three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And uh, according to the custom of the day, you know, Tamar, who was married to the oldest son, Ur, uh, and, and he was not a good guy. I mean, we don't, you know, it says the Lord slew him. Uh, I don't know what that means. Uh, he displeased the Lord. I don't know what the nature of his sin was. I don't know, you know, whether this uh, is talking about a, a providential act. I mean, certainly God is in control of all of these things. I don't understand, you know, exactly what lines we are to draw there. But the bottom line is Ur dies uh, without an heir. And so, uh, that was a big deal in those days. So, the, the Tamar, the, the, the sister-in-law, was to be brought into Onan's household, and then Onan was to raise up an heir for Ur. Now, the problem with that from Onan's perspective is that's one more person to share the inheritance with. You know, if Ur is gone and he has no heirs, then Onan and Shelah get half each rather than a third each, right? So Onan's sin is not so much his spilling the seed on the ground, it's his unwillingness, it's his greed, it's his unwillingness to raise up an heir for Ur. 
And then Judah pretty much ratifies that by refusing to give Shelah, his youngest son, to Tamar later on. So you see, there, there's this family that's a mess, and Judah's right back in the situation. How do I deal with this? Do I deal with this in, with integrity? Do I deal with this, you know, facing it head on? But Judah does the same thing. He withholds Shelah, tries to go around, right? Tries to go under or over, but not through. Uh, he, he withholds Sheila and he sends Tamar back as a widow into her father's home, the text says, uh, which was a huge shame, a huge shame in that day and age. So here's the lesson. If you're at the wall, if you're at the wall in your life, whatever the wall might be, whatever you are identifying as the wall, you need to go through it. You can't go around it. You can't skirt it. You can't go anywhere else. You have to go through that wall. But the temptation, of course, is not to do that. The temptation is to find anything else, anything else that will give us a reason to, you know, to avoid that wall. And so that's the, the second point that we want to look at here is what is it that, that Judah looks to? Where does he put his fidelity? You know, where does he give his allegiance to? Well, there are two things here, and one I've already alluded to, and that is uh, consorting with the Canaanites. Uh, you know, Judah was this guy. He had been given to a community. But when he was seeking to avoid his wall, when he had that whole issue with Joseph, and how do I get through it, and how do I deal with the lack of love that my father shows to me. How do, I, how do I handle all of these things? He says, I'm not going to. I'm going to go down and I'm going to go consort with the Canaanites. So interesting in this passage, you know, this Adullamite really takes uh, a, a major role. A couple of times he's called his friend Hira. Do you know that that is one of the very few times that the word friend is used in the Old Testament? Uh, certainly in Genesis, we haven't seen it up until this time. Uh, so there's something that is being communicated to us here. You know, the level of faith, the level of fidelity that Judah has put, has placed into Hiram. And, and Hiram is, is not trustworthy, not because he's Hiram, not picking on him. But we know that the Canaanites in this situation... Uh, they're the ones that Judah is supposed to be a light to. He's supposed to be showing the way for Hira, not looking to Hira to provide his answers and his escape. Uh, but he does that. And I think that's a question for us. It's a fair question. You know, when we come to the wall, where are we looking for guidance? Where are we looking for solace and comfort and friendship and all of those things? Now, again, God has given us to a community, and we are an imperfect community. We just had a whole series on that, right? We are flawed people in every way. If you put your trust in me, I am going to disappoint you. Uh, nonetheless, God has given us to each other. Why? Because together we at least know enough to say, let's go to the Word. Let's go find our way through this wall together, uh, seeking the Word of God and, and relying on it 
as truth. You know, we can go outside of the community, and it's not to say that truth doesn't exist outside the community. Some of you, I'm sure, have uh, you know, heard of or read Jordan Peterson. Uh, he's a Canadian psychologist. Uh, he's got 12 rules for life. I think there's some really good practical wisdom there. Uh, don't, you know, espouse everything that he would say. Certainly not. But there, there are things, if you're looking for a nugget, you can go to Jordan Peterson and you can find a nugget. But I'll tell you this, he doesn't love the Lord. Uh, and, and his worldview is not one that is aligned with the world. He doesn't have kingdom values. And so there is going to be necessarily a limitation on the kind of wisdom that he can give you. Uh, there is necessarily going to be a limitation on that. And so when we find ourselves at the wall, one of the first escapes that we have is to go outside of the community. One of the first warnings that we get is be careful because you might get more than you bargained for. You might end up a friend of Hira and married to a Canaanite and, and raising kids who don't know the Lord and all of the things that flow from Judah's decision to move in that direction. So one of the ways that we escape is consorting with the Canaanites. Another way that we escape, and you know, again, this is the, you know, the, the sort of the, the scandalous nature of this passage is that it really looks at how we seek saturation through our sexuality. Now, there's a certain sense in which, you know, sexuality could be uh, substituted for any type of love that becomes a God replacement. And a lot of those are good things, like sexuality is. Our sexuality is a good thing. It's a God-given gift to us, and we are to exercise it with joy, uh, you know, before the throne of the Lord. Uh, you know, but same with work and our families and, you know, the gifts that God has given us, sports or music or art or any of these things. Any of these things can become an escape route. They can become a God replacement where Instead of going to Him in our pain, we seek to saturate ourselves or satiate ourselves in other ways. And we certainly see that here with Judah with regards to his sexuality. It starts early, uh, what is it, verse 1, uh, verse 2, I guess it's verse 2. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and he went into her. Hardly a romantic depiction of their courtship, right? You know, he saw and he took. You know, he is living by the eyes. Remember when we talked about that? I think that was last summer. Uh, Lot, living by the eyes. Abraham, living by the ear. Uh, Judah is, is going with what is right in front of him. And, and he is seeking to satiate his void by seeing and taking. Now, we come here and we realize that not a whole lot has changed, right? We, we live in a sex-saturated society. Uh, pornography, prostitution, affairs, the kind of literature that we read, all of these things, what we watch on television, our entertainment, you know, and, and why? You know, why do we live that? Because we have the same pain. 
it's disappointment, it's failure, it, it, it's all of these things, and we're, we're desperately looking for something to fill the void that is in our life. And so, you know, like we're prone to do, we look into created things rather than looking to the Creator Himself. Uh, as you read the story, you, you just realize how deep this has gone. You, you see that with Onan. He, he, he doesn't see his sister-in-law as somebody who is to be honored with a seed, right? He, you know, Judah, by, by, uh, by not giving Sheila to her, ratifies that. He doesn't see his, his sister as somebody, or his daughter-in-law as somebody to be celebrated. And when he goes in, this is the words of one of the writers, he says, when he goes in to the harlot, Tamar, as she plays that, the fact is exposed that Judah and his sons have used her for pleasure rather than seen her as a wife who should be celebrated for her fruitfulness. Please, please. You know, the scriptures are, are, are warning us here. They're inviting us. You know, a couple of things. One, never look at a person as less than being made in the image of God. With, with all of its intricacy and all of its beauty, you know, please, let's, let's, you know, go through that. You know, whether it's a gender-related thing, males to females, females to males, you know, whether it's, you know, a, uh, you know, in the complexity of the relationships, people that we may be at tension with, never, never, never look at them as less than a person who is created in the image of God. And please, note that Whatever you are putting there as a God substitute, it will never satisfy you. You will become only more adrift. You, your boat will, will be only further out at sea. There will be no purpose, no satisfaction. I mean, you really see that with Judah. I mean, he, he goes through, and this is about a 20-year period here where he is separate. There's some overlap between this story chronologically and then the story of Joseph as it goes on. So we'll see sort of Judah and Joseph come together in their stories later on uh, as we come. But for 20 years, you know, Judah was feeling the emptiness. He was feeling the ache and he was not finding any relief. And it gets so bad uh, that when... <coughs> When you see uh, the, um, that uh, Tamar is pregnant, Judah says, bring her out, this is verse 24, and let her be burned. I mean, he is so far away from the heart of God, isn't he? I mean, he is willing to judge. He is incapable of seeing his own shortfall, never mind that he had just stopped in at a harlot. He didn't know it was his daughter-in-law. You know, he, he was so incapable of seeing his own shortfalls in his own life. But he was so capable of judging somebody else. And that's really part of it, right? You know, as we go through life, what we want is a greater sensitivity, not to other people's sin, but to our own. We, we want that greater sensitivity so that we can really see and feel the heart of God. Judah would have perhaps loved 
her more had he been able to see it. But it's not the end of the story. And this is the really, really good news because in God's grace, Yahweh does not let Judah stay there. He is reeling him back to himself through the wall. He is reeling himself back and he is calling him to be the patriarch that he was destined to be. How does he do it? He does it by implanting the fear of God in him. Truly, the fear of God. And, and what's even more remarkable is he uses this Canaanite woman to do it. Now, you can preach a lot of sermons on this and talk about the morality of uh, Tamar. Probably not the direction that the text wants us to go. Uh, Tamar here is used in a wonderful way to expose. I'm not condoning you know, her, her role or sexuality or anything, but it's very complicated. Uh, but God is using Tamar to expose to Judah just how far away he is from God. <coughs> <coughs> Sorry, just how far away he is from God. Now, there's two things, finding grace and the fear of God. The first is this, repentance. This, what Judah says in verse 25, you know, as she, or verse 26, as she says, look it. Yes, I'm pregnant, but let me show you who I'm pregnant by. I'm pregnant by the one whose cord, signet, and staff these are. You know, Judah has essentially left his driver's license in the hotel room. Uh, Judah was caught. He was exposed. These are very personal items to him in terms of carving and all of these different things like that. And so right now, you know the biggest grace in Judah's life? He can no longer run. There's nowhere for him to go. He is caught. He is nailed. And what it leads to is repentance. In fact, it's the actual first public confession of any person in the Bible. And he says, she is more righteous than I. Why? Since I did not give her my son, Sheila. Verse 26. It's such an interesting passage for a number of ways. First of all, this is the way through for Judah. If you want to make progress through the wall, you have to lament both the brokenness of your situation and your own culpability in it. Uh, you have to be able to repent of your heart being apart from God's heart. You have to recognize it and see it and acknowledge it. And it's not until Judah can do that, she has been more righteous than I. So fascinating, right? She's the one who's identified as a harlot in this passage. And Judah, the patriarch, says she has been more righteous than I. And, and you know, part of it is he's able to see past the external sin to the internal sin. You notice he doesn't confess the fact that he had illicit sexual relations. What does he confess? I failed to give her Sheila, my son. I, I failed to honor her as a person. I turned my back on a widow in need. I was so consumed by myself, so selfish, that I turned my back on her. This is what Judah confesses. He gets right to the heart. You know, sometimes 
in our repentance. We, we either under-repent uh, by only looking at uh, sort of the fruit sins in our life, you know, things like sexuality, maybe gambling or, um, you know, anger that erupts, all of these things. We look at the fruit sins and we fail to really look at the root. You know, what's going on deep inside of my heart? Where am I not really believing God? You know, when, when Judah left home, he wasn't believing that God could work him through that situation. When he failed to give Sheila, he wasn't trusting that God could provide for his family. He was on his own, failing to really rest in faith in God. And that's the invitation that we have. What, what are you struggling with? You know, when you come to that wall, where, where do you need to confess that you're not believing God? You're not believing that He will see you through your divorce, the bitter disappointment that you have with your parents, or the disappointment that you have with God because He hasn't given you the things that you think you need for happiness. What is at the root of these things? And this is what God is inviting us, inviting us to confess. I think there's a little bit of instruction here for the church, right? Sometimes we get so focused on morality, you know, or simply morality, you know, don't smoke, chew, drink, go with girls who do, that kind of stuff, you know, that we, 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 I, you know, here Judah says she's been more righteous than I. He is identifying the injustice that he had against this defenseless widow as being a greater sin than the sexual liaison that they have. You know, do we have eyes to see that kind of sin? You know, where we are not simply kind of looking at the externals, but looking down into our hearts at the things that are internal. What's so great about this in Judah's life is it sets him free. You know, God's grace is not necessarily about our happiness. You know, there are a lot of things in life that are going to be hard. If Judah had stayed in Hebron, he still would have had to deal with the fact that his father loved Joseph and Benjamin more than him. He would have had to deal with the fact that Reuben was you know, not reliable as an older brother, that Simeon and Levi were violent. He would have had all that stuff to deal with. But he would have been free had he had his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what repentance does for us. When we come before God with rigorous, raw honesty, we are set free. Because we no longer have to perform to somebody else's standards. We no longer have to lie to ourselves about how well we're performing to our own standard. We actually have the freedom to be the person that God has called us to be. And you see how it flows out of Judah's life. I mean, when Judah goes back, he, he loves his father, even though his father still wouldn't be comforted. He loves his brother Benjamin, even though Benjamin was still the favored son. He is able to become a slave instead of acting like a slave trader because he is free. And he has realized the grace of God. Are you free? Because that's really where this passage is drawing us to. 
It's drawing us to live in the freedom of the gospel. Now, what do I mean by the gospel? Look at these last few verses. Because when we find grace in the fear of God, not only does it come through repentance, but it happens by means of an astounding reversal. Verses 27 to 30. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one of the twins put out a hand. The midwife took, tied a scarlet thread around his hand, saying, this one came out first, but he drew back his hand, and behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach. Afterwards, his brother came out, the one that had put his hand out first, with a scarlet thread, and his name was called Zira, which means red. Here's where the narrative begins to focus in on the amazing grace of God. Because in this narrative, we see that Judah is the one on whom God would put his favor. Judah, the failure as a son, the failure as a brother, the failure as a father, as a father-in-law, as a husband. Judah, this one who was a failure, every step along the way, God looks at him and says, perfect. Exactly what I was looking for. I was looking for you, and you are going to be the bearer of the seed. And from day to day, all the way out to 2018, they are going to be talking about the lion of the tribe of Judah. You know, it's Perez, right? If you go to Ruth, you see the line of Perez, Ruth chapter 4, the line of the generations of Perez who fathered Hezron, Hezron, Ram, Ram, Aminadab, Aminadab, Nashon, Nashon, Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And in David, we have the line of the Messiah, the very one in Matthew chapter 1 where we see uh, Abraham, the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, I, this is so interesting, the father of Judah and his brothers. You know, we call this the, the Joseph stories, right? The end of Genesis. Joseph doesn't even get a mention in Matthew chapter 1. But Judah is there and so is Tamar. The father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez by Tamar. And we see the wonderful grace of God because... It is at this point that God brings the Messiah, the one who would be the elder brother who is not a failure, the one who would be the son who, because he knew he was loved by the Father, would go to the cross, the one that would marry us so perfectly, the one that would be the wonderful Father who will never, ever, ever turn his back on a helpless person. We get all of this in the person of Jesus through this story, Genesis 38. I think it's fit for homiletical exposition if we want to see the real grace of God. I started with Bryce Griffin, uh, the young woman who found herself terminating her unwanted pregnancy. She says this, 
I trudged through several more years, feeling happy at times and doomed at others. One day I was listening to a homily about confession, and it said loosely, if you've had an abortion, confess it. Your child is praying for you in heaven. She has a Catholic background. My chest heaved with uncontrollable sobs, and I ran home to arrange an appointment for confession. There in the confessional, heaving with sobs once more, I truly expected to be struck by lightning. After all, I now sat there acknowledging that I was guilty of the worst sin possible, murder. But my priest smiled, and he handed me a box of Kleenex, and he said, God is so happy that you are here, you will be forgiven, and you will find healing. There is so much grace with our God. Bryce Griffith, now the founder of the Charlotte Center for Women, where she meets with and counsels women in her same situation, and gives them that same grace of God day in and day out, week in and week out. Why? Because our God loves to take broken things and make them beautiful. Our God loves to take your life and my life and make it shine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. It really is a, a penetrating MRI sort of word. Um, there, we cannot hide, nor do we want to. Right? Maybe we sort of want to, but we really don't want to. We want you to uh, search us and know us, try us, see if there's any offensive way in us, and lead us in that way everlasting. So, Father, be gentle with us today. In the days to come, even as you are truthful with us, help us to be truthful with ourselves and the world around us. Thank you for the grace that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.